We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 25, picking up where we left off two weeks ago regarding the work that Moses was doing, being led and guided by our Lord. Exodus chapter 7, in verse 13, we pick up with an affirmative and an absolute statement that's made here in these verses. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning, lo, he goeth out unto the water. And thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come, and the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou take in thy hand. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. And the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord, saw, and the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thy hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all the pools of their water, that they may become blood, and, there, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, servants, and all the waters that were in this river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither did he set his heart to this also. And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. And seven days were fulfilled, after that the Lord had smitten the river. As we move forward this morning, we see here... God's plan for his people and Satan's onslaught against Israel continues. Moses and Aaron possess the rod of God's power, and Pharaoh turns to the demons of Satan through his sorcerers once again, who use their satanic powers. Here, Aaron releases the rod, and the serpent had become, it swallows up, it, it had become the serpent, the rod, and it swallowed up the sorcerer's rod. We're going to find something out interesting about these sorcerers this morning. Also, try to mimic this next incredible miracle that happens. God's plan unfolds yet again, showing Pharaoh will remain hardened. And the question that we can ask here is, what happened to Pharaoh's heart? Did he just get up one morning and he decided to have his heart hardened? We read of actually the conquest of Nero, that at one time under the tutelage of Seneca, that he actually was a very good person and a very good person to deal with. Nero was for a short amount of time. And then all of a sudden, something happened to Nero and he became the beast. And he's the very one that basically started butchering Christians over and, and literally illuminating his garden with their bodies by 
burning them at the stake. And all of a sudden, his heart was hardened. So the question here is, what does it mean that his heart remained hardened? Christ is the victor. God always wins. Moses and Aaron will continue to pursue Pharaoh for the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that was made by Jehovah. And I love this. Genesis 15, 13, and 14 we read, And he said unto Abraham, remember at this point his name was still Abram, not Abraham quite yet, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. Every prophecy made here is being carried out perfectly. The Lord many, many, many years earlier told Abraham, my people will be stuck in Egypt and I'm going to deal with them. We see how back in, in Exodus chapter 4 verse 21 we see, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. And then we see again in chapter 7, verse 3, and there are other verses, I'm just reading a couple. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So we see that there was a very serious state of rebellious recalcitrance in the heart of the king. We see back in verse 14 that we read that we do not read that Pharaoh's heart was hard by himself, but it was hardened. The distinction is made in that Pharaoh did not make his own heart hard, but God had already hardened it. And in the previous text, we read, we say that this refers to God being the author of Pharaoh's heart. He is the one that hardened his heart. And so what do we do with that? Do we say that that's God's fault? Pharaoh had absolutely no responsibility before the Lord. Well, we're going to see here that there was a very, very serious outcome to the decisions and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, that he was given the warning. The Lord had hardened his heart, but he still warned him. And he gave him a fair warning that there was a way out of this. If any theologian teaches Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, and that God made it stay that way because of what Herod did, I mean, I'm sorry, what Pharaoh did, which same as Herod actually, because Herod was the same way, it would be more than nothing but a theological lesson in free will that Pharaoh could choose the own state of his own heart, which we cannot. Proverbs 21.1 clearly states, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And so we, also, we know that God is either Lord of all or He's not Lord of anything. Then at the hint's point of the Reformation in, Rev, in, in Romans chapter 11, 33 to 36, we finally read in verse 36, Of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Everything is of Him. Keep in mind that the portion of this verse, we re, we're referring to the rivers of water, He turneth the heart... Soever he will, the Lord brings the plagues. If we go to Zechariah chapter 14, 18, we read, And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. And what the Lord was saying here to Pharaoh, I want my people to worship me in the tabernacle in the wilderness. I want them to physically come to my sanctuary because I am going to train them. 
Now, you can either let my people go, or I'm going to get them one way or the other. You can do this the easy way, or you can do this the hard way. And that is an ultimate universal message for all of mankind on this earth. We can either do things the easy way, or we can do them the hard way. And isn't it incredible how we usually chose the hard way? It's kind of like innate in us. It's kind of like wrenched into our fiber as we're created. The first words that come out of our mouths are not, yes, ma'am, mommy. We say no. You know, we always want to do things the hard way. We're always looking to be punished. And that can, and that can happen. But we see here that Pharaoh still refuses to let the people go. He wouldn't listen. He's not a good listener. Pharaoh had no idea that God's ways are past finding out. And that is in Romans 11.33, actually. And he was falling right into the hands of a very almighty God who does not appreciate being vehemently blasphemed. Here we see in verse 15 that Pharaoh would get up in the morning and go to the Nile River for washing and performing some religious rite. This would entail worshiping false gods. And if he worshipped at the river, he would most likely be worshipping the river. And that's the truth. If you go back into ancient writings and you go back, this river was actually worshipped. It was one, it was actually almost basically turned into a de deity. So the question is, with this plague coming, and we know what it is, is this imminent plague arbitrary? Or did God just randomly choose afflictions to get Pharaoh's attention? Did the Lord, was he up in the office, up in heaven, and he just started throwing darts at some kind of plagues and saying, hey, I think I can do this to make his life miserable? Or was there some kind of plan involved and a reason to teach us why he went in and he turned that river into blood? Why did he do it? Well, one of the reasons is because they were worshiping it. And this was the first of three rendezvous meetings at this river with Pharaoh to inflict these great plagues. I think it's fascinating that actually Moses tells Aaron to use the rod. Where did we see the rod before? We just spoke about it. The rod was used, turned into a serpent, and basically the serpent turned into, went in and ate the serpents of the sorcerers, and here we see that the rod was used. And the question is, how can we apply that to our lives? Do we have a rod in our life that can do miracles for us and that can stand up for us and change our lives and, and, and fight for us? That rod in Moses and Aaron's hand fought for the Israelites. And it was a... It was a manipulative, it was a physical uh, part of basically the teaching of the Lord to Moses and Aaron, and that rod was there to perform these miracles. Well, if you go to Isaiah 11, 1, we read, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And that is a messianic prophecy. Our rod is Jesus Christ on the right hand of the Father. We see that part of the ritual attached to Pharaoh's morning meetings at the Nile would involve singing hymns of thanksgiving. Y'all remember the old song, the old Baptist song, Shall We Gather at the River? Remember that? The beautiful, beautiful river? Well, what does that song lead to? What does it talk about? It's that beautiful river of Jesus Christ, the flowing living waters. Well, when the Egyptians got around and brought the Israelites with them, and, it's, and we see that the Israelites had been very entangled in the false worship of the Egyptians. They would literally get around the river and say, shall we gather at the river and worship the river? They would literally worship it. They would literally sing songs, and that's true. This was 
The, one of the reasons is this was the country's greatest single economic resource. We're going to find out before this session or this, this message is over this morning, we are going to find out why this river infuriated God. The presence of this river infuriated Him. Why would He hate this river? Well, we're going to find out. Part of the ritual attached to Pharaoh's mornings meeting would be involved in singing hymns there. The Nile River, and I know there's nowhere you're going to find in Scripture the name Nile River. You're not going to find it. But it's an allusion to it. It's, it's a, it, it is the Nile River. You won't see the name there, but that's what it is. This was a pivotal waterway as it engulfed several sides of Egypt. Boats would come in and, and go strengthening the economy with import and export. This was Egypt's actual number one food source, which would become polluted just as its number one food would be contaminated. And not just the river itself was worshipped, but the water canals and the pools, they worshipped all of this. So we see plainly in verse 15 points out that the very same rod that became a serpent would be the rod that would be held over the river. And something incredible was happening. Now the last time that we studied, this was a miracle. The Lord was training Moses, and now he's taking the playing field. He told Moses very plainly, you tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and if he won't listen, I'm going after him. Moses and Aaron are directed by God to take the high ground. Stand on the river's brink and give Pharaoh a fair warning. That took a lot of guts to do that, by the way. <clears throat> Remember, how old was Moses at the time? He's 80 years old. His brother Aaron is 83 years old. The Lord says, you stand on the high ground. Basically, you are above Pharaoh, and you start yelling down to him, I told you to let my people go. I told you to do it. He refused to do it. Moses and Aaron are standing on the river's brink, and Pharaoh is now, as we learned last time in the first 12 verses of chapter 7, the Lord has made Moses a god to Pharaoh. In a small g. So pretty much everything that Pharaoh sees, he's in some form or another, he makes everything some kind of a god except Jehovah. And so the reason why Moses and Aaron actually have the ability to stand there and do this and not be taken in and executed, which would happen to anybody else, is God has got Pharaoh's attention, although his heart is hardened, and now Moses is going to speak. And when God speaks through Moses, nothing is going to happen to him and Aaron. They're protected. We see that through Scripture many times. So the two Hebrew brothers call down and they decree, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, and behold, hitherto thou wast not here. Now, already we've seen the, name, the names that the Lord God gave Moses. First time he said, You tell the people of Israel, I am that I am. I am the God of your fathers. You tell them I am. Then he says later on, I am the God of Hebrew. Of the, of, of, I am the God of Israel. Now he says, I am the God of the Hebrews. Making great detail exactly what he's talking about and going back and seeing the fulfillment of his prophecy and the covenant to Abraham. Did this not take guts for Moses and Aaron to do this? They stood up over the top of Pharaoh at this time of pagan worship, interrupted Egypt's pagan worship and declare their God to be the true and living God. We see that furthermore, God instructs Moses to say as he stands over Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, I am the Lord. You're not. That's basically what he's saying. I'm the deity. I'm the one who's in charge here. 
And so I guess, the, I guess we could really ask the question, actually from what we saw somewhat this morning in the adult Sunday school class, when it comes to these decisions by God, and here the Lord decides that he, not decides, but he has predestined that he's going to go after Pharaoh and he's going to go after Egypt, does that show an unjust God? Does that, does that show a God that's unfair to do that and to pick Israel and to not pick Pharaoh? Absolutely not. Pharaoh is responding to the warnings in a recalcitrant, rejecting way, and the Lord's going to deal with them. And that's what he'll do with us in our lives if we, if we reject the Lord and his word. If we sin against him and we're unrepentant, the Lord will deal with us. As Pastor Olson always says, no one gets away with anything. Here the consequences are pronounced in these verses, and they are very clear. All the water shall be turned into blood, and the fish shall die, and the river shall stink. This plague would be the first of ten plagues, and we read it in the same order of the numerical sequence, if you see in Psalm 78, 43, how he wrought his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, and, and had turned the rivers into blood and their floods that they could not drink. This is the very first plague. And the very first wonder of this plague is that the water is being turned into blood. Well, so that brings up a big theological question. Was it really blood? Was that river, was it blood? Or was it some mythical, metaphorical legend that basically could be described by some scientific wonder? Well, I got a couple examples for you here. And of course, as before, there's some very, very incredible scientific answers that show that God did not actually turn this into blood. No, it was not blood. According to them, it's not. Well, I'm here to tell you today that it was blood. It was real blood. That's what it was. And the Lord says it. He wrote it. There's the Hebraisms. If you go back and you study it, it points to it being blood. There are many that believe that it's not. Well, in Psalm 105, 29, we'll start this off by saying, He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Even the psalmist agrees. Then we see that this is the first of the ten plagues. Had the water really turned into blood? I'm going to read you an article that pertains to a theory of what modern scientists may have, what they believe may have happened. And we see that there's a wide spectrum of scientists who also have their theories. And so this is basically what has been a real problem in our seminaries today. Because there have been many that basically follow along with this. Because these academicians, these highly educated men, they come up with these scientific... They say basically if we can't describe and if we can't basically punctuate and bottom line foundation all of this stuff with science, then it doesn't exist. And here, this is a supernatural event. Supernatural events by God cannot be described, they cannot be explained by science. It was a miracle. Had the water really turned into blood? So here's one, I'd like to read you two separate articles here, just to give you an idea of what's out there. And so you can, you can definitely be, um, be very careful. Did anthrax plague the Egyptians at the time of Moses and the exodus of the Israelites? Anthrax was in, has been in the news for years, and it was because of a man-made bioterrorism. But naturally occurring outbreaks of the sheep-based disease go back thousands of years, they say. Many biblical scholars believe that the biblical ten plagues were an inter interconnected series of catastrophic natural events that include an attack of anthrax on animals and humans, 
In the most widely known version of the theory published in 1957 by an English lit scholar named Greta Hort, the ecological domino effect is kicked off by a massive red tide of algae laced with anthrax bacteria in the Nile River, though there, then there are many problems even with this theory, but this is what they believe. Anthrax is a soil, it's soil based and not found in the Nile. That's what the real truth is, but they say that it was. Even in Hort's theory, it's not a correct one, but they say it. A number of top specialists in the field of harmful algae blooms, algal, actually, A-L-G-A-L, blooms, such as leading U.S. expert Don Anderson of Woods Hole Oceanography Institution believe that some type of algae may have been behind the plagues of Egypt. Former New York City chief epidemiologist John Moore has proposed a series of emergent emerging new diseases as not so new after all, but as part of a chain of deadly biological plagues in the time of the Israelite bondage. But there are many scientific as well as biblical objections to such a naturalistic theory of the Egyptian plagues. According to Horch's theory, each plague recounted in the book of Exodus occurs in the correct natural sequence, all triggered by one underlying cause, a single and extraordinarily severe occurrence of the annual Nile flood in July. This torrent washed down a massive load of red mud along the main reddening agent, the red algae which discolored and contaminated the water in a red tide. The supposedly red mud algae together created the plague of blood. Hort names two species of algae as the culprits, then followed the deadly chain reaction of successive plagues, says Hort. And it says that's what killed the fish. Dead fish developed anthrax, sickening the frogs and driving them ashore. Dead frogs contaminated the soil, infecting and killing livestock animals with internal anthrax. And it goes on and on and on that all this algae and anthrax, this is what caused all of the devastation that God had nothing to do with bringing it down. Here's another conspiracy theory. A college professor says that the Bible contains much that is a myth. An example given is when the Bible says that the Nile River was turned into blood in Exodus 7, 14 to 25. He specifically names the actual passage. And here's what he says. He says basically that it, it, it is claimed that this was merely a case of red-colored silt that churned into the water of the Nile during the flood season of that river. And so we have to ask, how does a Christian respond to this? goes on to say that there is nothing new about this rationalistic approach to the supernatural events of sacred scripture. For example, one writer says, deposits from the Abyssinian lakes often color the flood waters a dark reddish brown, especially in the upper Nile, that might be well said to look like blood from a man named Werner Keller, the Bible as history. And there are many misguided attempts by them by, they say, to befriend the Bible by helping to provide natural explanations for the supernatural. They say that it can't be explained. They say that basically all this was, this, this, this uh, the Nile River being turned into blood was red clay. It was mud. If you study Hebrew, you will learn that in the Hebrew writing, the word D-A-M, dam, or damam, actually comes up and explains how this was actual blood. That is a Hebrew word for, the, for blood. If you take the name Adam, if you take the letter Daleth or D, or the letter M-E-M, M, combined with the letter Aleph, 
you have a sound of ah. Ah sounds denotes the elements of air or breath of life. Thus the name Adam means blood with breath. And that's what Adam's name means. He's created. He's a living being. And the point is, the word blood, it represents a substance. And the river had blood. And the blood has bacteria. And the blood was horrible. And it stunk. You know how many people faint at the sight of blood. Can you imagine what this looked like? A very important question, why might it have been turned into blood? We know that it ultimately was God so choosing and a manifestation of His wrath. In Jeremiah 10.10 we read, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. The blood has been a warning to those that turn on the Lord. We remember that Jonathan Edwards wrote and he preached the sinners in the hands of an angry God. Based on these verses, Isaiah 63.1, Who is this who comes from Edom with blood-red robes from Basra? He whose clothing is fair, stepping with pride in his great strength. I whose glory is in the right. Clothing is fair, stepping with pride in his great strength. I whose glory is in the right, strong for salvation. Why is your clothing red and why are your robes like those of one who is crushing grapes? I have been crushing the grapes myself. And of the peoples there was no man with me in my wrath and in my passion. They were crushed under my feet and my robes are marked with their lifeblood and all my clothing is red. Verse 4, For the day of punishment is in my heart and the year for the payment of the price for my people has come. And this is what had happened to Egypt. Remember, there was a Pharaoh that knew Joseph. Remember that. And he, he mentioned the name of the Lord. He honored Joseph. He honored the Christian life. And Pharaoh was greatly blessed. Seven years of famine. There were seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. And the Lord sent this Pharaoh in Egypt, the one that knew Joseph, sent him a Joseph. And Joseph was a master accountant. And he's the one that planned all the storehouses and the food for all those years and it spared their lives. And now look what's happening here. What did the Lord do? Pharaoh had stained the river with the blood of the Hebrew children and now God made the river all bloody. That is why he hated the Nile River. And he was furious. They had stained that Nile River with the blood of the little babies. Remember the Hebrew babies that were thrown in? And they were drowned. They were probably eaten by crocodiles. And this was a horrible, horrible plague. Anytime a country turns its back on its children, that is a horrible thing that they're going to face the Lord. And look at the stains of the blood of the babies that are being aborted at 3,800 3, a day in this country. And you think the Lord's going to turn a blind eye to that? Thus he gave them blood to drink. The truth of the matter is that the Egyptians regarded the Nile as their fountain of deity, and Jehovah began, began pouring his wrath out on Egypt by taking their primary water source and with his powerful hand made it a pool of blood. Matthew Henry says this, He made that a scourge, he makes that a scourge to us, which we make a competitor with him. And we need to be very, very careful at those things that we put before God if we do. It says he makes them a scourge that we make a competitor with him. The worshippers of Satan, whose blood of the martyrs were on their hands, and 
and they were given a little present by the angels. Revelation 16.3 we read, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Verse 6, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Pharaoh had shed a lot of innocent blood. He had a lot of people murdered. Once again, no one gets away with anything. These verses speak of real blood, of substance. This first plague was not just confined to the water in the Nile. As we go forward, the blood would take over all the waterways to the point where it would be in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. The water had putrefied. It smelled horrible. Remember back in 2007 and Lake Lanier in Georgia became so low because of horrible drought that it stagnated and it stunk and the whole area was in panic. And basically what had happened, the governor, if you remember, he's got a very common name and I can't remember it. He went and he prayed and the people mocked him. CNN fake news laughed at him. And he, he went and prayed, and they were mocking him. And he said he was going to pray. And, they, and they laugh. if you read about it, I remember on the news they laughed at him. And guess what happened that very week? It started to rain. And I remember that was a horrible drought. Georgia was in bad trouble. And all of a sudden, Lake Lanier dried up and it smelled. I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother had, and my grandfather had bought this little tiny plot of land way down off of Evergreen Road in Back River. And they had this little piece of land right on the river. And I remember my grandfather when I was a kid... I always loved being around him, but there's one thing I hated. It's when he took me down there to clean up the dead fish down in Back River. Oh, I hated that. It stunk. You had catfish. They had flies all over it. And we would bury it in the sand or bury it wherever we could. And we would bring it all in. And we all know how clean Back River is. <laughs> you don't want to swim there these days. And it stunk. Well, can you imagine the blood? Can you imagine what that was like and how it just took away the joy of the Egyptians. Egypt, Egypt was a very fertile land. They were brilliant masters of irrigation, and it was beautiful, it was green. Orchards were really just ba- basically blossoming, flowers everywhere. They had, it was beautiful, and all of a sudden, overnight, the Lord rains down His horrific terror because Pharaoh wouldn't listen. All of a sudden, it became a stench. As we read this morning, I love those verses in Amos chapter 4, 1 through 11. If you go to chapter 5, it says that the pagans, basically their incense became a stench to his nostrils. And that's what this became. See, many rivers today are just polluted and they're horrible. If the contaminated waters were not devastating enough... Now Egypt's primary food source was killed. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The changing of the waters produced the death of the fish, and it was another serious pestilence. Man, the fish was a major economic strength of Egypt. There was a strong trade for fishermen. The market sold the fish, the people needed it. See, the Israelites in the book of Numbers complained profusely about the manna, which was all they could eat. As much as they were enslaved and treated horribly, they would look back at the foods that they enjoyed. We read it in Numbers chapter 11, 5. Oh, remember all the complaining and the whining of all the Israelites when they go out. Here the Lord brings them out of a horrible enslavement, gives them two wonderful leaders that He gives them immense miraculous power, gets them out of the evil clutches of Pharaoh, 
They were told that God had said to Abraham that he was going to bring them out and give them a land of milk and honey, give them the promised land, and they whined and they complained and they never stopped showing their ingratitude. And in Numbers 11.5, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. So what the Lord said? Anybody remember what he said? He gave him something else. He gave him quail. And he was so furious. This is actually one of those things where it's almost like the Lord's being sarcastic. And it's almost, you kind of laugh at it because it almost seems like kind of a joke. He says, I'll give them so much quail that it comes out of their nostrils. <laughs> he said, I'm going to give them, they don't want nana? Well, I'll give them plenty of fowl. I'll give them plenty of chicken. And they're, they're going to even hate that too. That infuriated God, and Moses was very displeased with the people, but he loved them. And the application here is mammoth. The plague was a righteous plague in that river. It was the people's idol, and they paid all their devotion to the streams. You know, you notice as you go forward, what's very fascinating is basically every plague that comes down, and it was 10, the Lord could have made it 20 plagues. He could have really made it interesting. He could have made it 30 plagues. He could have destroyed every one of them. But you know, the Lord's mercy always pops up. Because we read in these verses, as we just read, that he turned the water, even in their cups, in their houses, in their stone cups and in their wood cups, turned that to blood. He turned the river into blood. He turned the streams into blood. But there's something that he did not turn into blood. It says that they started digging. They were digging wells. And according to, it doesn't say exactly what, 100% what that means, but according to a couple of commentaries that I had the, the honor and the privilege of reading, one of them, Matthew Henry's, he said that the Lord's so merciful that he did give them enough water through that to get them through seven days. He can't go too far without water. But he made it really hard on them here. And we do serve a very, very merciful God. We see that what what we are looking at here is we're looking at a plague that greatly opens up to us the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship unto thee any graven image. Anything that you put before God is considered an idol or a graven image. And John Calvin said very, very profoundly, he said, we are all by nature, we are all idol worshipers. And it takes work for us to come down off of them. We worship people. We worship our cars. We worship our houses. We put this in front of us. We put that in front of us. It isn't any wonder when we're driving to church and you look and you see so many people that are just riding their bikes and they're trying to get better health or worshiping that and perhaps not going into the Lord's house. You see the sporting events going on and all of these things that are out there that people love and they put before God. What's the Lord going to do to them? Matthew Henry also says, and I quote, that creature which we idolize, God justly removes from us or embitters us. He makes that a scourge to us once again, which we make a competitor with him. So if we put anything before him, it's a sin. And we can expect punishment from him as he says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. Well, I give to another, neither my praise to graven images. And if you read 1 John, John the Beloved, he continues his writings. You love the Gospel of John. 
and he writes the Gospel of John, and then he goes on to 1 John. He ends chapter 1, we go, we see chat, in 1 John 5, 21, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. I, it's, it should be in our hearts to want to not put things before God. But we do, and we can repent. Now we go to verses 22 to 25. We see, and the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And this is what I find fascinating about their enchantments. Do I believe, do you believe, do you believe that they would have the power to create such enchantments and do a copy? What did they do? It doesn't say. But evidently they were turning some kind of water into blood because they were copying the enchantments. But I find something fascinating about the, fascinating about the magicians and the sorcerers here. Never did they do anything that really meant anything. They were just copying. They weren't doing anything to help anybody. They had no affection for any of their own. All they were trying to do was to show Pharaoh that they could do something that other people couldn't and get his attention. And it worked because he looked at his sorcerers. If you remember, there were a couple of other kings in the Old Testament that were really concerned about their dreams and they wanted someone to interpret their dreams. Remember Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. And they wanted these interpretations made. And what did they always wind up do? They go, what doing? They went to a man of God. The man of God are the ones that always could step up. But look at the magicians and their enchantments. How ludicrous it was that all the magicians, all they would do is copy the plague. It would have been more needful for their sorcerers to reverse the plague and turn the water back into water. I mean, the blood back into water, wouldn't it? Now that would have been a pretty good enchantment if they could have taken that blood and turned it around on God and said, put their staff into the water and turn that blood back into clear, clean drinking water. But they had no ability to do that because God had not allowed them to do it. He always has the first and the last word. This shows how powerless they were before God and they did this, this, this failing emulation and what it did, it did strengthen Pharaoh's stubbornness. Here, the, Egypt, the Egyptians, what Pharaoh would not do is what many that have no affection for Christ, what he would not do is he would not repent. He would not go to Moses. As he regarded him as a god, he would not go to Moses and Aaron and say, Moses, I've had enough already. We can't do this. I know you mean business. You're standing on the high ground, and there I'm out there trying to swim, and I'm trying to fish and all these things. And you turn in my water into blood. Can you, can you please turn it back? Let's kind of work something out here. Let's have some kind of a, you know, like some embargo between us and let's fix this. He wouldn't even do that. He goes to these sorcerers. It says, Pharaoh and Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. He would not set his heart towards the Lord. And all the Egyptians dig round about the river for water to drink for they could not drink of the water of the river. So it doesn't say that they couldn't drink of the water that they dug. That was the hard water to get. But the easy water out in the Nile, that was, that was a stench right now. It was in bad shape. Really bad shape. So the Egyptians would dig down around the river. They would have been digging deep with hand shovels. Remember, they didn't have any equipment. It was all by hand. And they were looking for the subterranean water supply. You know... Verse 25, as we get in, seven days were fulfilled. After that, the Lord had smitten the river. And this is a real manifestation of a, of a very heartless, hard heart, heart, heart who was heartened 
leader who would allow his people to suffer for seven days. He would just allow them to have to smell the stench, see the blood in the river, see the dead fish, and he was just going to let it go. Do everything on his own, and nothing worked. And he would literally, he did not know this, but he had to wait on God, because it was only the Lord that could turn it over. But here we see this suggest an interval of time that occurred before another warning of another plague was delivered. What this indicates is that there was time between the plagues and they did not occur in an uninterrupted succession. Pharaoh's heart was so mulish, it was hardened, that he would not so much as lower himself to beg Moses to reverse the horror of the blood and he cried not at all when his land was bound. He showed no affection for his people at all. He was a politician. He was not a statesman. And we can see this today in our own government, allowing the people to suffer. Look at the riots. Look at the lack of support for the police. Look at the immense amount of money now that we have to pay for things. And the president just sits back and he laughs at us. He has no affection. Not one tear is shed on people hurting. Not one tear is shed on the fact that not only has he pushed Planned Parenthood beyond the womb 28 days after the womb, but he's taken the money and he's funding it internationally now. And he's taken it out of our money. No affection. No, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. He says, people that have no natural affection for one another. And what is he going to say? Be kindly affection one to another. Here we see Pharaoh's heart was so mulish. He was so hard and he was so bitter that he didn't care. He cried not when his land was bound. We read in Job chapter 36 verse 13, But the hypocrites in heart heap up wrath. They cry not when he bindeth them. And it's no wonder that God's anger is not turned away. And we see this, what happens here is everything happens in God's time. That is why as Christians, we are weak. We are bound by this little thing that we pay all this money for in our wrist. It tells us pretty much everything. When the day's over, when we get up, and we're always impatient. You know, our loved one gets sick. God, I want it now. Heal him now. I don't like this. I feel very, very bad for my loved one. And yes, that's a very natural affection, and it's wonderful. Please heal my loved ones. We pray Wednesday night. You lose your job. Lord, when am I going to find another job? You know, how long do we have to put up with this regime in the White House that stole the White House? How long do we got to put up with this? The Lord's timing is perfect. Our first objective is to trust in Him and not put anything in front of Him and have natural affection for our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a real important application and tenet for salvation. Do you have any, do you have affection for Him that you're willing to trust in Him? Are we going to do it perfectly? No, me least of all. But are, are we in our hearts trying to press towards that mark, as Paul said? Paul said, all the things that I shouldn't do, I do. The things that I should do, I do not. O wretched man that I am, who will save me from that wrath? And he points to Jesus Christ. And Moses had this in his heart. He had natural affection for Christ. He says later on, if you read in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it's, I think it's Deuteronomy 18.15, There shall be a prophet among you, and he shall come, and woe be unto you that will not hearken unto him. And Christ said himself, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Moses spoke of me. And Moses is mentioned by Christ himself in the New Testament. And you see how these plagues all come together 
The next one we know we're going to look at next time, Lord willing, I'll be able to do this again soon, hopefully, Lord willing, frogs. And what happens with the frogs? And there's all these other things that happen. But once again, this calcentrate heart, and I want to take this one step further before we leave. One step further. The stain of the babies was the anger of God that turns the Nile River into blood. And then later on, the stain of Pharaoh's blood will be seeping out in the Red Sea when he, at the very, all the way down the line, shakes his hand and his fist in the face of an angry God. And who wins? Who wins every time? Always remember that. The Lord is, he is Christus Victor. He wins all the battles. If you don't believe me, read David. David never lost a battle because of the Lord, but I know you do. So, I just want this to be an encouragement. There's a lot of damnation here. There's a lot of hard stuff, but it shows how the Lord fights for His people. And He fights for you. He will fight for you, He will stand up for you, and you will win. You will win with Him on your side. Always. You can never lose without Him. And I think, and that's always been an encouragement for me. You know, I can stand here and say from my heart that one of the things I love about my age is I've known Moses my whole life. I feel like I know him personally. I feel like I've actually met him and shook his hand. Him and Aaron, Paul the Apostle. Paul's one of my favorites, Peter. And with Moses, he's just incredible to watch him from 80 years old to 120, how much he accomplishes in 40 years. He's beginning here. So let's finish with this, and I hope this, uh, I hope this is encourages your heart. Our Heavenly Father, I thank Thee and praise Thee for these words, wonderful words of life that Thou hast given us. And Lord, this is all pointing to redemption, salvation of Thy people from a wicked land, people that hated the Lord and now wanted to bring them to a tabernacle to bless them. Going into thy sanctuary like we're doing this morning. There are blessings that come from that. And we thank thee and praise thee that we're here because, Lord, thou hast drawn us. Pray, Lord, that, Lord, as we continue on with this week, that we'll have opportunity to witness to others. Thank thee yesterday, Lord, for the track ministry. And I pray that those tracks and all the brochures with the Bible verses that went on the houses will get into the homes of the people, that they would be saved. Pray for those that are hurting here that have that have sick loved ones, those that are, that are struggling. I pray for healing for them. And I ask, Lord, that as Thou, Lord, send, brings us home today, that we will be safe, that we will enjoy our fellowship together, and then we'll look for opportunities to speak Thy name. And all these things we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat>